following podcast contains explicit content and is not suitable for all listeners. The term bystander effect refers to a social psychological theory that states that individuals are less likely to offer help to a victim when there are other people present. This theory has been tested and researched many times over the years with many different variables coming into question. Most notably, this theory emerged after a reported 38 bystanders stood by as a 28-year-old woman was stabbed, raped, and robbed on March 19, 1964. This is the story of Kitty Genovese. Catherine Susan Genovese, or Kitty as she liked to be called, was born on July 7, 1935 in Brooklyn, New York, to parents Rachel and Vincent and Janelle Genovese. For those of you that aren't as familiar with United States geography, Brooklyn is a borough of New York City, and it's most populated with 2,648,403 people as of 2020. It is bordered by the borough of Queens to the west, with connecting bridges and tunnels to New York City in the north, and the borough of Staten Island to the east. The South Shoreline houses the infamous Coney Island Amusement Park. Kitty grew up in a brownstone at 29 St. John's Place in an area called Park Slope in Northwest Brooklyn. At the time, it was heavily populated with a primarily Irish American and Italian American population. Kitty grew up in a very religious Catholic Italian American household with her three younger brothers and as a teenager, went to the local all-girls school, Prospect Heights High School. If you're like me, neighborhoods such as Williamsburg, Prospect Heights, and Flatbush are familiar names from TV and film, but their actual geographic locations are virtually unknown to me. I will put up a map of the area to give a better sense of understanding to the areas I'm discussing in this episode. I post pictures from each episode on my Instagram at femicide underscore podcast if you'd like to check them out. And a quick side note, brownstones are essentially townhomes that are clad in or made of a particular brown sandstone material popular in the northwestern United States, specifically the New York area, but also parts of Chicago, Boston, and Philadelphia, among others. Some of these terms may seem obvious, but as my listeners are from all over the world, I like to explain as much as I can to really paint a picture of the areas I'm discussing. In high school, Kitty was described as having a, quote, sunny disposition, end quote, and that she was, quote, self-assured beyond her years, end quote. She was also considered a good student and was voted class cut up in her senior year. I had to look this up, but essentially it means someone who is similar to a class clown and acts boisterously. Sometime in 1954, 
Her mother actually witnessed a murder take place and moved the family out of Brooklyn to New Canaan, Connecticut, which was about 83 kilometers or 52 miles away, which today is known as one of the wealthiest towns in America and obviously was a safer place to live for the Genovese family. Kitty did not choose to move with her family, though, as she had just graduated high school and was planning to wed her high school sweetheart. I couldn't find the name of her fiancé, but the two wed sometime in 1954, only to have the marriage annulled later that same year. Before her marriage, she had been living with her grandparents at their home in Brooklyn, but following the annulment, I believe she got an apartment in Brooklyn and began working. At the time of her death, she did have a roommate, but they had just met a year prior, so I'm not sure if she had other roommates before that or lived alone. It was a different time in society than nowadays, and I'm not sure if it was even considered appropriate to live alone or financially if that was possible for a working class female. I'm curious, so please let me know if you have answers to that. But at some point, Kitty did move into an apartment at 8270 Austin Street in the Kew Gardens neighborhood of Queens, New York. Another side note here, but it was reported her roommate was a woman named Marianne Zilonko. But in an article from 2017, it is explained that Kitty and Marianne were actually lovers and had met at a known lesbian bar called Swing Rendezvous. And it was also Marianne who was awoken by the police following the incident and asked to identify Kitty's body at the morgue. In a quote from a 2004 article, Marianne stated, quote, Being a gay woman in that society was very hard, so we were in the closet a lot. In fact, her family didn't know. I mean, they know now, but there was denial there. It was very hard then, end quote. This also explains the abrupt annulment of her previous marriage and that perhaps she came out to him. I don't know the circumstances, but it makes sense. In the 10 years following her annulment, Kitty held various jobs to make ends meet. She started doing clerical type jobs, but found them lackluster and eventually began working at a bar. She preferred this type of work, being around people and interacting with locals, so much so that she was actually saving to purchase her own Italian restaurant. Kitty was also quite the ingenious person and was always trying to make more money, which led to her being arrested in August of 1961 for illegal bookmaking, which means she was taking customer bets under the table at the bar she worked. Her and her friend, D. Guaniari, both were fined $50 and she was fired. Today, her $50 fine would be about $450, so it was a fair-sized fine for the time. She soon got a new job, though, and eventually was promoted to manager. This bar was called Eve's 11th Hour and was located at 19314 Jamaica Avenue in Queens and was about a 15-minute drive from her home. Kitty drove a red Fiat and on the early morning hours of March 13, 1964, she locked up the bar, got into her vehicle, and drove her usual route home. It was on this drive home that a man named Winston Mosley saw her as she was stopped at an intersection waiting for the light to change. At roughly 
3.15 a.m., she parked her car at the Kew Gardens Long Island Railroad train station and began walking to her apartment door, just 30 meters or 100 feet away. Her building had a rear entrance that was accessible by a small alleyway, and as she made her way to the door, Winston ran up behind her and stabbed her twice in the back. Kitty screamed out, quote, Oh my God, he stabbed me, help me, end quote. And a neighbor named Robert Moser, hearing the commotion, yelled out, quote, Let that girl alone, end quote which caused Winston to retreat, and he jumped into his car and drove off. Kitty then dragged herself further towards the building before collapsing at a locked door, unable to let herself in. This is where the initial reports were incorrect about what had occurred with the neighbors of the building. Reports stated 38 neighbors did nothing as Kitty was attacked, but in actuality, some did try to call police, but because of the lack of information, this caused the dispatcher to place the calls at non-priority. This was four years prior to 911, and only the local police station was called. Additionally, Kitty had moved out of view of the other tenants by crawling towards the door, making it impossible for anyone to see, when just 10 minutes later, Winston returned to finish off the job. I'd like to take this moment to thank you for listening to my podcast. The concept behind femicide is very close to my heart, and I hope through these stories we can shed a light on the abuse, violence, and sexual assault that women face daily. This podcast is a 100% one-woman operation. I research, write, record, and edit every single episode myself. To help support me and my efforts, I have now started a Patreon account. If you aren't familiar with Patreon, it is a membership-based platform designed to allow fans to support and connect with their favorite creators. Sign up today online at patreon.com or via the Patreon app. Again, I will leave a link in the show notes of this episode. Please note my Patreon postings will be on hiatus until September 30th due to unforeseen personal circumstances, but rest assured these episodes will continue to be posted as scheduled. As always, I will be donating 10% of all gifts and memberships every month to various charities that support women. The charity I will be donating to for the month of August 2021 is Dress for Success Toronto. Since 2009, Dress for Success Toronto's mission has been, quote, to empower women to achieve economic independence by providing a network of support, professional attire, and then development tools to help women thrive in work and in life, end quote. Gifts, while deeply appreciated, are not the only way you can show support. It would mean a lot if you would subscribe to my podcast and leave a review, as it really helps to bring awareness to these stories. And please, don't forget to share with your friends and families, because word of mouth is the best review of all. After returning to the apartment building, Winston Mosley searched the train station and alleyway before finding the nearly unconscious kitty in the building hallway, bleeding out 
and unable to open the locked door leading to safety. This is when 29-year-old Winston began stabbing Kitty again, repeatedly, before raping her and then robbing her of $49 before once again fleeing the scene. Kitty's friend and neighbor, Sophia Farrar, found her following the second attack and cradled her until help arrived. Neighbors did come to Kitty's aid, and this time, police response was quick. But sadly, her injuries were too severe, and 28-year-old Kitty Genovese died on the way to the hospital at approximately 4.30 a.m. It was not immediately known who was responsible for this vicious attack on Kitty, as the witnesses couldn't describe him accurately because he was wearing a wide-brimmed hat that hid his features. And initially, it was thought that Kitty's girlfriend, Marianne, was behind the attack. She was questioned immediately following the attack, but was additionally interrogated for six hours by two homicide detectives. It's reported their questioning was focused on the relationship between Kitty and Marianne, and that they also questioned neighbors about the status of their relationship. It's implied their sexuality could have been a motive, either by Marianne hiring someone or by someone targeting them. But as domestic partners are always first to be looked at, it doesn't seem that far off to me that she would be questioned. The difference here is the time period in which this took place. Homosexuality was not something that everyone spoke of, and seeing as she was raped, I'd sooner think her sexuality made this a hate crime before considering her partner to be behind it. Most of the articles surround the bystander effect I previously described, and so some of the details about her sexuality and the investigation were lost in the sensationalized stories that became synonymous with her name. In 2015, a documentary titled The Witness was released, executively produced by Kitty's brother, William, which details the events of her death, the neighbors' responses, and the inaccuracies initially reported. On March 16, 1964, Kitty Genovese, surrounded by loved ones, was laid to rest in Lakeview Cemetery in her parents' town of New Canaan, Connecticut. Meanwhile, her vicious killer was still at large. Winston Mosley was a married father of three who was born and raised in Queens, New York. He worked at a company called Remington Rand, which was initially a typewriter manufacturer before becoming a mainframe computer manufacturer, now called Unisys. He was a tab operator, which meant he was responsible for the punched cards that computer systems back then used to store information. I'm not sure if that was a well-paying job or if he was considered unskilled in that role, but nevertheless, he held down the job, supported his family, and had no criminal record up until that point. Thankfully, just six days after her murder and three days after her funeral, on March 19, 1964, Winston was arrested for suspicion of robbery. He was spotted carrying a television out of a home by a neighbor in Ozone Park, Queens, the same area he resided. When questioned, he claimed to be a mover, 
but after the neighbor asked another neighbor if the residents of the home were moving, and it was confirmed they weren't, the police were called. It was actually such a good case of neighborhood watch, and quite the opposite to the reported bystander effect from Kitty's murder case. The first neighbor, Raul Cleary, spotted him, questioned him, and asked a neighbor, and then went to call police, while the second neighbor, Jack Brown, disabled Winston's car so he could not get away. It's not clear how he did that, but likely he disconnected the battery or something of that nature. His car was a white Chevrolet Corvair, and the responding officer remembered that witnesses also spotted a white car the night of Kitty's murder. When questioned, Winston admitted that he was responsible for the attack on Kitty, but in a shocking twist, he also admitted to two more murders and a slew of robberies, burglaries, and sexual assaults, somewhere between 30 to 40 crimes in total. The two additional murders he admitted to were that of 15-year-old Barbara Kralik, who was murdered the previous July in her parents' home, and 24-year-old Annie Mae Johnson, who was shot and burned to death in her apartment a few weeks prior. The additional confessions were unfortunately never tried in court, as another man named Alvin Mitchell also admitted to killing Barbara Kralik, which complicated the case, and in the end, Winston Mosley stood trial for only the murder of Kitty. Obviously, I read a lot about killers and murder cases, and I wanted to briefly touch on some theories I have about these confessions and whether I believe it was Winston or Alvin that murdered Barbara Kralik. Barbara's murder was by stabbing, which was the same method as Kitty's. It took place nearly eight months prior and killers often have a cooling off period between murders, so that all makes sense. Assuming Barbara was in fact his first victim, and assuming we believe he also murdered Annie Mae Johnson, we can then theorize he tried a different method of murder, maybe to see what he preferred, or to destroy more evidence. Or maybe her death wasn't even his target, but rather robbery was, and she just got in the way. And then Kitty's murder a few weeks after Annie Mays was needed to fuel his desire because he was either unsatisfied or he was now escalating. I personally believe Winston was behind both the murders of Barbara Kralik and Kitty Genovese. And while I can argue his involvement in Annie Mae Johnson's death, I'm also not entirely sure. But if not Winston, then who? One report I found stated that initially, Annie Mae's autopsy listed stabbing as her cause of death, but an additional autopsy performed in New York City found the wounds to be from bullets, not stabbing, and bullet fragments were discovered as well. Remember, this is 1964, and at this time, Queens would have been more of a small town next to the bigger city. This development apparently came after Winston's confession that he shot Annie May, which then corroborated his story. But then why wasn't he charged? To my knowledge, no one was ever tried for her murder. So it is likely 
that Winston Mosley was the culprit behind her murder. And a reminder, I am by no means a criminologist or a psychologist, so these are just some theories that I have regarding these cases. Also, no motive was ever really given for why Winston Mosley committed these murders. However, it is explained in some reports that I saw that he was a necrophiliac, which means that he liked to engage in sexual intercourse with deceased persons. So that definitely explains the escalation to murders from sexual assaults. 18-year-old Alvin Mitchell was ultimately convicted of Barbara's murder, even though he recanted his confession, claiming police beat him into his initial confession. And even though Winston Mosley testified at Alvin's first trial that he was in fact the murderer and detailed the events. His first trial ended in a hung jury and his second ended with him being convicted of first-degree manslaughter and he spent a total of 12 years and 8 months in prison before being released. When asked why he confessed to a crime he didn't commit, he answered, quote, I would have confessed to killing the president because them people had me scared to death, end quote. Alvin was a known gang member in the area and went by the nickname The Monster. This entire case is extremely complicated, and the New York Times article that exaggerated the neighbor's responses on the night of Kitty's murder only made it more complicated. But thankfully, even with all these confessions, false confessions, hung juries, autopsy errors, and so on, at the end of the day, Winston Mosley was sentenced to death for the murder of Kitty Genovese on June 15, 1964. His death sentence was later overturned to a life sentence due to a technicality with his initial argument of not guilty by reason of insanity. He was never granted parole and died in prison at the age of 81 on March 28, 2016, serving a total of 52 years in prison. But sadly, this story doesn't end with Winston going to prison. On March 18, 1968, he was being transported to a hospital following a self-inflicted wound when he overpowered a guard, stole his weapon, and escaped prison. He hid at a vacant house, but when the homeowners returned to check on the house, they were taken hostage by Winston, tied up, and the woman raped before he stole their car and went on the run. The next day, he took a mother and daughter hostage in Grand Island, New York, which for reference is near Buffalo, New York, and the Canadian border. Finally, after a short standoff with an FBI agent, he surrendered and was taken back to prison, where he was sentenced to two additional 15-year sentences for escape and kidnapping. He was also involved in the 1971 Attica prison riot, in which prisoners revolted for better living conditions and a total of 48 people died. Winston Mosley was denied 18 parole requests and never showed any remorse for the killing, 
stating later on that he simply considered her death the consequence of a mugging, saying, quote, People do kill people when they mug them sometimes, end quote. Despite the fact he admitted the night of her attack that he left his wife in bed at 2 a.m. to specifically go out and to look for someone to kill. I think Winston Mosley was absolutely a serial killer and a threat to society. And while it's utterly tragic that Kitty Genovese was murdered, her death was not in vain. Because of her murder, a dangerous offender was taken off the streets and likely many other sexual assaults and murders were avoided. Her death also led in part to the formation of 911 and more reliable emergency dispatching services, which have undoubtedly saved countless people. And because of the fascination of the bystander effect and her sensationalized story, this brave woman who lived unapologetically for herself at a time that it was not socially acceptable to do so will never be forgotten. Thank you for listening to the story of Kitty Genovese. I'm your host, Sean Marie. Join me next time for another story. <laughs>